Friends, you're on the Unhindered podcast again. I have the privilege of interviewing Jess Wilson today. I've been trying to get Jess on the show for some time and we finally teed it up. So Jess is a repeat tech entrepreneur and she's the founder of Women Making Waves, which is an NFT, uh, sorry, which uses NFTs to fund law reform. Um, she was named by Forbes as one of the 1,000 people in the world most likely to change the world in the next 50 years. Sorry, the 1,000 people under 30 most likely to change the world in the next 50 years. Um, that was said of her eight years ago. So be very fascinated to see what's happened since and what's happening next. So uh, Jess, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad we got to chat eventually, and I've got another 42 years to make a bit of an impact. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to hold myself too stringent to the time frame. Um, and yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Fantastic. Uh, all right. So love to understand backstory, and the specific backstory I'm most interested in is the impact of you growing up in the family you were gifted into. So tell us about what it was like being a child in your home and the impact your parents had on your sense of self growing up. I grew up in a really small farm town. I was one of six people in my year at school. I'm the eldest out of my siblings. And when I say I'm one of six in my year at school, like we grew up on a farm, 200 acres. We had everything from like chicks, pigs, chicks, lol, chickens, pigs. <laughs> cows I grew up with potty calves my 13th birthday I got my potty calf Susie who's still alive today I go out and call her name in the paddock and she thinks she's a legitimate dog and will run up to me um so very kind of humble farmland of a upbringing and a location and my parents it's funny so my dad is a civil engineer so he's very like methodical in how he speaks my mum's in real estate, so she knows how to sell. <laughs> and growing up, the main thing that I remember is there was it was just this constant, like I was the type of kid who wanted to try everything. Like I wanted to try every sport. I wanted to like have every animal. We had hermit crabs. I had potty calves. We had, you know, pet lambs. We had everything. And my parents always let me test and fall over and fail at everything. There was hardly ever a, no, you can't try that. It was always like, yep, cool. Off you go and, and try it and, and let us know how you go. So I think that in hindsight really took me down the path of entrepreneurship because the first thing I ever sold, um, and I hardly ever tell this story, but the first thing I ever sold was literal cow poo to farmers in that around Christmas time, I would, I would gather together all of my cousins and I would be like, look, if we go shovel up this cow poo and put it into bags I'll make a sign cow poo $5 because up the road they're selling this thing called um, fertilizer which is actually cow poo which we have copious amounts of for $10 so if we actually sell this for $5 we can go and buy ourselves baby chickens from the the produce so we can have them as pets because they're $2 each <laughs> so that was the first thing that got me involved in wanting to start anything with the entrepreneurial lens and I think I was like 10 years old or something really young but that came from my parents constantly being like they were not the type of helicopter parents they were very like go do your thing. We will support you. If you fall over, cool, pick yourself back up and off you go again. Amazing. So that sounds like a really great start and a real gift. Yeah. Um, so that, that must've instilled with you some natural confidence and the ability to have a crack at things and then find that you could do things that leads to, you know, success reference points. Well, if I, if I did that, what else could I do? So then uh, where did that lead you? I was actually painfully shy for a large part of my life from 
probably end of uh, primary school into early high school. And um, I remember a really good friend of mine, Sydney, at the time, it was just in year eight and year nine, she instilled a lot of confidence into me. And it was when my um, school decided to ban formals and formal after parties, I got that kind of hit of entrepreneurship again. And we went to my parents and pitched to them this idea of running these events in the paddocks that we have. Um, and my parents said, look, okay, this sounds wild, but if you bring us a plan, then maybe we can we can look at it. So we did and we pitched my parents and they said yes. And the reason I told that story is because the principal at the school I was in called me and my parents into the principal's office and were like, look, you're not allowed to do this. <laughs> they were like, no, it's a hard no, this, this is not something that we're okay with. And what my dad, and I remember it so clearly, what my dad said to him was, look, they're going to do it regardless. So he'd rather them do this in a safe environment where there's parents, where there's, you know, where we've got some level of being able to be with the kids. And what that said to me in hindsight, I didn't really realize at the time, but in hindsight, that was my dad backing me in the face of a authority figure. So that was one of the next real big lessons for me was I learned really young that I could test things and fail at things and, you know, kind of had that entrepreneur knack. But then I found it again at around 15 um, and then was backed by my dad in it. Um, and then that kind of little business of running formals and formal after parties in 16th and 18th and 21st led me on to the career that I went and did after that. Amazing. Uh, so I, I talk to people all the time who are confused about the role of their parents and assume that parents automatically, every parent automatically has the ability to imprint certain beliefs and uh, rules and opinions just because you are their child. Um, but it doesn't really make sense because if that was true, every sibling would turn out exactly the same if they've had experience with the same parents. So the idea of understanding your own role in forming your beliefs about yourself as separate from your parents is a really big part of developing your own you know, individual strength and resourcefulness. So obviously you've had great parents who've modeled some beautiful things to you, which has been good. And you've seen how they do it and liked it. Um, as you've kind of exited their home and begun your own journey and, and being a shy person naturally, I bet it wasn't just, just, you know, without any problems stepping up in the world and continuing to be an entrepreneur. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like forming your own self outside of your parents? Yeah, that's a really cool question because for me, and it's always interesting to reflect like this because you hardly ever <laughs> like sit and think back to that on the daily. So I yeah, was very shy and then starting that little business when I was 15, 16, I, I got addicted to entrepreneurship. Like I was like, this is incredible. I love this. I then wanted to go to uni and learn business and learn um, fashion events and things like that. And I remember it so clearly. I moved out of home at 17, <laughs> moved down to Sydney at just 18. And I was like this, and it's, I don't even know how to explain it, but this hugely ambitious 19, 20-year-old. Like I was ready to move from this small town and just taste and experience as much as life as possible because I got this little taste for with running those little events around how you can turn an idea into something that people enjoy. Mm. And that was something that I wanted to really learn Um ongoing. And 
I remember one of the first things that I did that opened a lot of doors for me was when I was 19, I wanted to work for this fashion PR company in New York. I obviously knew nobody in the fashion industry, let alone New York. So I came up with this concept of I was going to send them helium balloons tied to a box of cupcakes and also a champagne bottle and just say to them, hey, look, I'll fly over an intern for you for free if you have me. And that was obviously so outside the box that they said yes. And I went over and I interned for them. And that turned into me working throughout Australia, New York and Paris Fashion Weeks over three years from the time I was 20, 19, 20 years old. So I think it was this huge amount of ambition because I had a taste for it when I was younger. And being almost like released from this small town. I was like, okay, how big can I think with this thing? And it was, and I I know we've spoken about this in the past. It was like rocket fuel at that time. It was legitimately like this really interesting time in my life where I wanted to really test myself. I wanted to um, jump into the business space, jump into the fashion space and to see what I could create from it. Amazing. And then how did you become noticed by people and noticed enough to go hang on a minute there's something about this young lady uh she's more than ambitious she's powerful and i think she's going to change the world so how how did you become that person i think it takes time and it's very not glamorous it's not like i was this version of myself when i was 19 i was two completely different people when i was 19 i was ambitious but i think i had to fall on my face a lot of times mm. i had to learn grit i had to learn perseverance i had to t- I had to learn how to pick myself up again and i also needed to learn um a lot of things when it came to business i needed to develop a better foresight so i think what i did different to a lot of people is from the outset quite young I would always do things which I would consider 20% more than everybody else, hence the helium balloons, hence the, you know, flying to New York to do this internship. But what I think gave me longevity to an extent was that persistence in picking myself up and constantly learning from each mistake that I made, constantly learning from everything that went right so that I could really hone in on this really strong foresight, which I think that I have now in that by being in business, I'm 31 now. And I started my first little one when I was 16, you develop a lot of foresight. So now that's something that I think is just over time, you develop that. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Do you, can you remember a time when insecurity got in the way or as a young woman, was it more like rocket fuel? It, it was just the ability to go prove yourself in the world, do more than the other person to demonstrate how good you were by how far you're willing to go. Um, was there a time when you felt limiting beliefs about yourself actively get in the way of your growth journey? Yeah, massively. And um, I will share a story. I don't think I've even spoken about this before. But so after my um, sexual assault, that does a lot of things to your mind, right? So for me, the biggest challenge that I found after that experience is that caused me to lose a lot of trust in people, but also a lot of trust in myself. Mm. And that was the hardest thing because I didn't have this ability to back myself as much because in my head, I was like, I put myself in this situation and it started to make me second guess myself and decisions I would make in my life in general. So I think that period of really losing trust in myself was one of the biggest things that I've overcome. And how I did that was by building back credibility and, yeah, I'd just say credibility and um, trust within myself. And I did that by seeking things which would fuel me with empowerment again and taking power back within myself. And 
what that looked like was the first thing I did was start a lawsuit in that I was saying, no, this is not something that I'm going to live my life and not seek justice for. And that just was- sorry, just to stop you there, just for the sake of those who haven't heard that story, you've shared it very openly on a, on a number of platforms. But um, one of the things I found very confronting was that most people said, no, that there wasn't anything that you could do that you had been, yes, you had been taken advantage of um, and this happened frequently and for someone in your position, you were not going to win a fight against someone as powerful as they were. So to find power, that wasn't just as simple as going, oh, okay, I'm going to resist and and start a lawsuit when the lawyers were saying, no, we can't help you. So can you just explain a little bit about that for those who are not familiar with your story? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Everybody told me it wasn't possible. There was people around me who said, put your head down, focus on the business. And when you're more successful, you can do something about it then, which is obviously horrible advice. And then I met with a number of lawyers and it's almost ingrained in my brain. They would say, Jess, we believe what you're saying, but it's not about the truth. It's about the law and how the law is structured. And given that, there's no way that you will win. And that added to the whole like disempowerment, the feeling of like, how am I going to get past this feeling? And for me, I just made this firm decision in myself. I said, even if it doesn't work, I'm going to back myself to try. And that process of backing myself to try and then finding a law firm who said, yes, we'll take a chance on it. We'll see if we can, if we can win. Uh, it took 18 months working with lawyers, barristers, Queen's counsel, psychologists, psychiatrists, experts they would bring in, and I won. And it was honestly the most empowering thing I've ever done because in the face of feeling very disempowered within myself, having everybody around me telling me no and deciding to stand up and say, you know what, no, I'm going to try anyway. And the whole process of the lawsuit, it was a real interesting healing experience for me because I learned how the law was structured. I just really found a sense of empowerment within myself. And it was honestly the best thing I've ever done. And to your question around insecurity, it's, that was the most insecure point of my life is just before then and everything after then being the lawsuit and then subsequently starting with making waves is how I worked through it. How long between having that experience and finding the strength and power to do what you did? Like, was that a was that a long period, a short period? How long were you in that period of insecurity? Well, that's a great question because the way our laws are structured is you have, as a survivor of sexual assault, you have three years, according to the law, to make a claim and win. Okay. And after that, it becomes really difficult. So that's what they call a statute of limitation period. You've got three years. So from start to settling my lawsuit was a three-year period. So it was not a very long amount of time. And that's why I'm so passionate around women making waves in this business, because I can say wholeheartedly that three years from when somebody's assaulted through to reaching an outcome of a lawsuit blatantly isn't enough time because by the time you wrap your head around it, by the time you seek the right law firm to work with, the, the, by the time you even decide if you want to do a criminal or civil or to speak around your story with the risk of defamation, it's a lot to pack into a short amount of time years-wise. And I can say that not as a theory, but as a literal case study, like I lived it. Um, so yeah, from from when it happened through to when the case ended is was three years. Yeah. And the work you're doing now, um, I imagine some of these laws that are in place are, are a big part of the work you're doing in the world to have those changed. 
Exactly. I think the gift that the lawsuit gave me was there's not very many people who have moved through a lawsuit with their eyes as wide open as what I was. Like I am ingrained as an entrepreneur. So as I was moving through it, I could see the problems through the process of someone moving through it. And I remember breaching the outcome of it. And I was like, there is, why the hell is that as hard as what it is? Like that should not be as difficult as a process for somebody to seek justice for themselves. Because mind you, I'd spoken to police, detectives, lawyers, like everybody in the spectrum, right? And gathering all that information, I just had this moment of like, why is this so hard? Like this should not be as hard as what it is. So from that is where we really came up with the concept for Women Making Ways, which is essentially a new age way to fund the process of changing various women's rights laws. And by doing that, we've aligned with people who have a great track record at it. So for example, Nina Fennell in Australia, equal rights advocates in the US, they've changed over 44 laws between the two of them. It's possible. It's a thing. When I found out law reform was a thing, I was like, why are people not running around on fire trying to fix this? Like, this is mind blowing to me. These people have a skill set which can fundamentally change our world. Um, so we aligned with them because we knew I wasn't going to go and learn how to change a law. That's not what I'm good at, but I am good at starting a business, co-founding it with my incredible business partner, Haley, and figuring out a way to empower a community and commercialize a business so we can fund the work of people who know how to do this. That's brilliant. Uh, it's so amazing to watch your journey and to, to see you doing the work you're doing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, insecurity is such a vulnerable subject. It's the one that I've devoted my life to thinking about. And uh, one of the things I'm most interested in in getting from people like you is is the, the understanding of how did you do what you do so I understand you found a way to find your voice but anything that you can share around how so um you know insecurity at its core is our worst opinions of ourselves so it's the things that happen to us that then make us feel like we're implicit in that that somehow it's a reflection of us that it's a reflection of our value and worth that it's it's a problem with us. And so that is very confronting because it's kind of existential. There's an inherent problem with me. Well, I, well, okay, that's terrible to know. And it can be, it can be, you know, catastrophic for a human being to not find their way out of those narratives. If you think that's who you are and then you live as though that's who you are, and then you create this loop of self-fulfilling prophecy around that's who I am, you can stay there forever. So to have had terrible thing happen and make it and had that cause you to feel badly about yourself, but then find a way out of those feelings about yourself to find power and find your voice and then ultimately be part of law reform for other people. That's no small thing. Uh, so um, for you to just talk us through the process internally, your, your own sense of self through that and whether you had people helping you, whether you had to do that all on your own, uh, anything you could share around the process of changing your thoughts about yourself in that experience would be so useful. Yeah, and that's a great question because that's exactly what it was. I had to change my whole psychology. Like mm. I had to literally rewire the way that my brain was working. That's mm. what it feels like in hindsight. And I remember for a substantial amount of time within the three years that it all happened, there was a considerable, considerable amount of time where I just didn't want to look at it. Like I was like, nah, we're not even going to look at this painful thing, right? Like you try to almost suppress it. Yeah. But I made this decision where I was like, that's not working. And I'm going to look at this thing, which is causing me pain. And I'm going to delve into it. And I'm going to 
you know, seek out experts when it comes to healing this part of myself because I don't want to live like this anymore. This is not how I plan to live my life. I don't like this disempowerment feeling. I don't like this feeling of not trusting myself. It's not, um, it was, it stemmed from a decision and I was like, I'm not feeling like this anymore. Mm. And then it was looking at the painful part of myself and it was finding people. And I, I like, it sounds almost cliche, but I went to a lot of retreats. I did a lot of um, like uh, just talk therapy with people. I did a lot of just introspective work on myself around how I was feeling and then how to move through it. And I think at the crux of it, a large part of it was understanding what my nervous system was doing in my situation. Like I needed to understand what my body was going through and I needed to really get a grasp on how to move through triggers and to move through all these things. Right. But I also in retrospect, look back and it's, it was a process of really taking control of my internal thoughts around myself. And that was a huge part of that re-empowerment part of my life in that I wasn't going to stay in this painful section of my life. I was going to really just almost back, had to almost lean into backing myself, even though it felt really foreign. Like it didn't feel natural to me, like it once did, but I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this because I'm, I'm trying to rewire the way that my mind is working around it. So that's a really long way of saying <laughs> I looked at the painful thing, did a lot of work around it. I found, you know, professionals to help me in it. And I really honed in on my self-talk towards myself and just leaned myself towards empowerment um, and just backing myself again. Yeah, amazing. Um, pain is such a uh, beautiful gift around this stuff because typically most people do not want to look at the, the stuff in their past that's hurt them. It's like, it is what it is. It happened. What would be the point of digging into that? It's just it's, it's suppressed for a reason. Um, then the people who make change do get to a point just like you, they say, yeah, but <laughs> suppressing is creating a whole bunch of collateral damage that's weakening me as a human being. And I can't be this person anymore with this unresolved mess. So I've got to look at it. Um, and that's the hardest part. The hardest it part is the hardest part. making decisions. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to look at this. And then the first few times you're in something, you might be a bawling mess, whatever it is. But that's the that's the crux is being like, I'm not going to not look at this anymore. I'm going to make the decision to go internal and, and look at look at doing the work on myself. Uh, here's something that I say a bit. I'd be fascinated to see whether this was your experience. And tell me if you don't let me um, impose a way of thinking, but was was it was it like this for you? I say to people often that this process of turning and facing it it does require a huge amount of courage to start with, um, but it's not courage that sustains it, which is contrary to most people's opinion. They think it's just uh, feel the fear and act anyway. You're always using courage as your fuel to override fear. Um, what I've observed in people who do face fear and who do rewrite their narrative. Yes, courage to begin. But when you get in that and you kind of see the fact that there's this deep level of woundedness that you have been implicit in and part of you is stuck in this wound and you are the only one that has the ability to resolve that and bring uh, healing to yourself, it's actually kindness that that leads you on because you're like, oh, wow, I can I can bring love. I can bring healing balm. I can rescue myself here. That's not courage anymore. I'm compelled to be kind to myself. And this is the kindest thing I do. I can do to keep leaning into this pain till I go all the way through it and come out the other side transformed. Is that is that language that makes sense to you and is, is resonant? 100%. I think it's giving yourself grace to be like, this is not going to be a, I go to one thing and I'm, you know, good again. And I think 
from my perspective, I think it's kindness, but it's what I found is it's also what meaning you assign to it. Like you're in control of what your narrative is for your life, which stems back to what your self-talk is. Like I could have created any sort of meaning around what happened to me, but what I decided to do was say, okay, this horrible thing happened. It was a, a moment where I decided to seek justice for myself. I won, which pulled me back into feeling empowered again. And now I'm going to use this thing, which was horrible to work with people who have the ability to go and change the laws in two countries. So for me, it was this real assigning a meaning and that meaning gave me a feeling of pulling me out of that process of feeling insecure because it pulled me into a place of feeling empowered. And it's really hard to feel empowered and insecure at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And that's central to all the change to see that you are the storyteller. So you, you do have the ability to change meaning um, and that nothing that's has meaning. That's why I put out that video. Cause I was like, yes, we had a lot, and I'll just tell you, we had a lot of media contact me who wanted to put out their own version of that. And I said, really? no, yeah, because I said, I want to tell this because mm. this whole healing experience for me has been realigning the meaning of what happened to me through my own lens because I'm in control of it. So mm. I said, no, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to put it on my social media page and it might not get, you know, the amount of impressions that one of the biggest news channels, which contacted us to view something similar but it meant more to me and it was more authentic to the business I was about to launch because it was the authentic story that I knew other survivors, other women, other women supporters will look at and they'll get the feeling that I wanted them to get across. And there was no risk of anything being skewed. It's a, it's a very pure way of telling that story. I was very moved by it. And for those who haven't seen it, I'll make sure there's a link to, to that story, the way that you told it. Um, thank you for putting that out there and, I'm sure so many people have benefited from that. Oh, it's, it's been wild. Like it's mm. been, and I, my intention was it was because when I was moving through my lawsuit, I needed to see something like that. Sure. I needed to see be really authentic and then come out the other side of something. Like that's what I was craving at the time. So now that I'd done that, I wanted to create something. So the next person who comes across has a reference point. And to an extent it worked. I've had hundreds, if not thousands of messages from women all around the world who've mm. seen it you know, either syndicate, syndicated in a um, news article or on my page or whatever it was. So it, it served the purpose that I wanted it to. Hmm. So tell us about what's what's um, happening in your world now. Out of the back of that, finding your power and your voice, um, what, what do you feel like? I don't know if you use the words like purpose or mission in terms of what drives you, but uh, what is in your heart to do in the world at the moment and what are you doing about it? Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing about it? I love it. Um, so we, at the back of the lawsuit is where we launched Women Making Waves. And this business, the only reason, the only way I can really explain it is I, it doesn't feel like a push. Like any business, obviously there's things you don't like around the day-to-day -day around it, but this company feels like I'm being pulled towards it. Like it is so inspiring to me and so motivating to me, the work that we get to do in the world. It's a very impact-led company in that the way that Haley and I designed it is we're essentially leveraging technology and bringing in a new demographic to philanthropy to uh, fund law reform experts to be able to focus on what they do best, which is changing our laws. So we've taken that um, model and what we're really honing in on this year is we've on the back of a um, campaign we did on LinkedIn last year called I Took the Pledge, we engaged a number of VCs and CEOs and corporate companies to essentially stand with us and say, we pledge to support the female founders in our funds, 
the women in our organization to back them. And, and we believe that we need to create a more equal world. And we also believe in women's rights law reform. So we had a literally a VC or a CEO or a corporate company post about this every 10 minutes on LinkedIn over, I think it was like three, four days. So that in itself was quite healing when at the very start of this whole thing, everyone was telling me no one wasn't listening to me and, and the whole thing, right? Um, so we started off with that. And what that taught us was a lot of corporate companies really want to stand up and provide real tangible change to their employees. I think the days of having future pink cupcakes with a girl boss slogan over the top of it at a brunch are done. And I think people know, okay, so how are we going to actually create women equality in our work? place so through that we've now launched something called swell club which is where corporates and ceos can sign up to a yearly subscription and it allows their employees to access in-person events which we're co-hosting with some of the biggest brands in the world the first is with uh, google cloud and google at the headquarters and we're keeping that kind of level of brand consistent throughout the years so employees uh, of these swell club members can go to these in-person events and the topics are across women equality web3 and wellness and we bring the most relevant information from experts around how they can create a more equitable world within their organization so there's that and then also access to a digital platform so for us that's the real focus this year is how can we engage as many corporates as many ceos as many companies into Swell Club so that we can teach them what the best practices are and educate them in a non-confronting way and really grow out this vision because kind of behind that, everything sits with half of what we make, we put towards law reform experts. So it's it's a real interesting time in, you know, commercialising this, this business and tapping into the companies and the, and the organisations who really see value in it, which is more than what we expected, to be honest. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I have an 18-year-old daughter who uh, freely gives me a TED talk around toxic masculinity and the male patriarchy. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's a real firebrand. And, you know, as a straight white male who uh, has a, an unfair advantage just because of the where I was born and my position, you know, it's a very important subject for me to get my head around and to, um, to make sure I'm part of the solution, not part of the problem. So uh, can, can you can you give us your view on on that big issue, toxic masculinity, the male patriarchy, uh, justice, equity. Mm. Uh, tell, tell us. <laughs> it's a big question, <laughs> but please, please give us something from your heart around uh, how you see that challenge in the world and your best thinking around how we move towards a more equitable world. Yeah. I think um, with us specifically, and I'll relate it back to what, we're trying to do right because I think when it comes to women equality it's I think traditionally people have tried to solve this problem in a vacuum in that they've got all the women at the organization at an event they're like cool what are we going to do it's like no it's a human problem it's yes. not just a women's problem in that we need both you know we need men and we need women we need everybody to come together to be able to solve this women sorry to solve this um equality issue so we're we're not kind of running around saying we're only going to speak to women we're running around saying this is a human issue we want women we want women supporters we want everybody to come in and, and help and get educated around how we can create a more equitable world i think Traditionally, in a lot of different industries, tech being one of them, there's a lot of different areas where there's been a lot of men traditionally at the decision-making table. So, for example, is in investment and in a lot of funds, 
the funds then make decisions from a board level where majority are men. So, for example, when a female founder is pitching to a fund, they might be solving a female-related problem, which is all business is. All businesses is, is solving a problem. So this there could be a, a literal company that was the best possible hair toner for blonde hair for women. You take it to some sort of fund with eight out of ten people on that board being men, they're going to be like, why would I do this? Mm. But they don't understand the problem at a kind of... Um, uh, micro level. So I think there's disparities when it comes to um, what, uh, when it comes to that type of thing in that area and how we solve that is by getting more voices into the right rooms. So in a kind of roundabout way, <laughs> answering your question is we're trying to solve the problem by involving women and women supporters. We by no means leave out anybody. And then I think how we solve it on a macro level is by having more women in leadership roles and decision-making roles when it comes to, in my only, I only speak from first-hand experience. So when it comes to tech and entrepreneurships, it's in those investor seats. Mm, yeah. Well, one of the things I'm curious around is I, I love gamification and thinking about the, the biggest games we get to play as human beings. And, and to me, I feel like the nature of the game of being a human being by design is that it's not fair. Yeah. And so when people feel like they need it to be fair or they, they find great tragedy in the spaces where it's not fair, it seems like I'm missing of the point. It seems like at any point, any human being could find a situation that disadvantages them. Um, some less so than others. Some have more natural advantage, obviously. But if you want to find injustice against you personally, you, you can find it somewhere and you can find that as the reason why you can't do the thing that you want to do. So there's something about uh, coming to terms with the fact that life is not fair uh, it's you're not just because you deserve something doesn't mean you will get it, uh, nor should you. That there's something that happens when you have to take stock of who you are, what you believe is true, and do something about it and fight against what's impossible and um, what others say you can't have. And there's something really meaningful and beautiful about the struggle, about the resistance, about having to take what, what you want rather than having it given to you. Uh, how do you feel around? that idea of injustice being part of the game? I think it's just the reality. I think yeah. it comes back to that meaning conversation again. Yeah. In that things always, if we can guarantee anything, you can guarantee that things are not going to go to plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whatever area of your life. Like that's a guarantee if we can guarantee anything in life. But I think what you can control is what you do when something doesn't go to plan. Like if something completely blows up in your face, then what are your next steps? Like the one thing you can control is your mindset and what practices you put in your life. The one thing you can't control is things are going to hit the fan at some point. So I think what life so far has taught me is that, and it's taught me to become very strong mentally and to put practices into my life that keeps myself level-headed because the thing that you don't want to do when you're in a really kind of bout of adversity is not think level with a level head. The thing you want to get to is being able to make decisions from a logical level-headed point of view, which is equally, if not more hard when you're going through a bout of chaos. <laughs> so it's this weird yeah. kind of dance between the two, I think, when you come across a struggle in life. And I agree. I think it's, there's always going to be difficult times, but mm. also it, some of the best things come out of things that you thought were going to be your plan, but then ended up not being your plan. Like I would never be running this company, which I find so inspiring, working with an incredible business partner, working with great impact leaders, if the most horrible thing in my life didn't happen. 
Like it's just this weird duality between life that I think you, yeah, you control the meaning of. I, I'm not sure where the quote comes from, uh, but heard it said that when you understand that life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you, that that is one of the most pivotal moments in your life to, to realize everything. There's a gift in everything. And um yeah, and that, mind that you, is, it feels horrible. It feels horrible. <laughs> in, a, in a lot of different, like in a lot of different times, like in a, that's just not my story, but in everybody's story, like mm. it's it's I think in hindsight that makes so much sense because it's like yeah. you're stuck in that, you know, of course. But yes. when you're in the shit, you're like, are you joking me? This is so hard, I don't want to do this. Yeah, but that's yeah. exactly when you need to do it. Yeah, that's part of the game too, that you can't see it while it's happening. And and it's high stakes because I mean you could have been taken out so so easily. Like you had a horrible thing happen that was deeply unfair and um, could have ruined your life. I'm sure it's ruined many people's lives. They haven't come out the other side. So the fact that you did come out the other side is so real because it wasn't guaranteed. And so and you look back at it with meaning and find the gift, but... uh, yeah, the gift wasn't obvious or guaranteed in the process of going through that experience. No, the gift of it was like a slither of hope that I had, to mm. be honest. But you can only, and it, it's like hindsight's twenty twenty. I can see it all back now and I'm like, yeah, okay, cool, that makes sense. But going through it, it was really confusing and I was like, oh, my God, how is this going to pan out? But I just had this faith in backing myself that I was going to try regardless. So it's this kind of funny thing and like when you're like just in the process things are murky and you're like what is going on but then when you look back it everything kind of makes sense i'm convinced this is how the world gets healed because you know it's individuals who are willing with courage and kindness to heal do whatever it takes to bring healing to themselves and then out of the overflow of who they show up as in the world then they bring healing energy to others and and give people courage that they also could be healed. Um, I think if you haven't embodied your own healing journey, you don't really have anything to give or bring to the world. And you, yeah, there's something empty about your message. So, so the world thanks you for um, healing yourself. Yeah, I can see that. I think it's, and I wanted to, with my experience, I wanted to make sure that when I spoke on it, I was speaking from a place that it didn't feel like an open wound anymore. It felt like a scar. Mm. So I could speak on it from a place of strength mm. and really kind of articulate myself how I wanted to, and it wasn't going to be overly triggering for me each time I spoke around it. Um, but I agree. I think it's almost this sense of people can see themselves in you. And if they've experienced something similar, they're like, okay, well, if that person can do that. Maybe I can do that too. And mm. it's like, kind of seeing yourself in someone else and someone else seeing themselves in you. And we're all human at the end of the day. So it's like, you can just, yeah, I think you can either sense it or you can see it, or there's this kind of mass healing that happens from one person sharing their story because it, it shows that it's possible to other people. Yeah. Well said. Uh, have there been books that have been particularly useful or books that you recommend to others specifically around the idea of meaning and storytelling and mindset, the stuff that you can control and, you know, the ability to process tragedy and and find the gift in it. Uh, do you think that there are certain books that stand out in your mind that were useful to you? I'm not an overly book person. I'm more of a um, YouTube or video person. Okay. So 
what I used to do at the time was two things. So I consumed a lot of Tom Billy content, a lot of stuff around mindset from him, a lot of Joe Dispenza, a lot of stuff around that. Um, and this hack that I used to do to more so convince myself that it was possible to morph and change as a human um, and morph into like, you know, a, a larger amount of self-expression around creating the biggest, most fulfilling version of your life. What I used to do, and it's like a little thing that I still sometimes do, but what I would do is Google on, so I would search on YouTube, first ever video interview of uh, whether it's Steve Jobs, Beyonce, um, anybody who you look up to or has an impact on culture, right, in the world, I would Google their first ever video interview and then their most recent. You put the two of them together, they're two completely different people. There's the first person who's unsure of themselves, they're kind of speaking, they don't really make sense, they're not as like, um, they're not as well put together as what we see now. And then you, you Google a more recent one, you're like, how the hell did that person transform into a literal different human being? And what that says to me is it's possible to change and morph into a different version of your life. And the people we see now can impact our entire world. So I think that says that you don't need to be this like 100% end version of your life because you might not be at that point yet, but you might not be at the start point either. So that's been a real hack for me and something I still kind of do now as well. That is incredible. That's I'm going to use that. I, I had, Up until now, my best version of that had been from... Um, Oh, who's the marketing guy who, who's written prolifically? Which guy? A uh, bald guy. He writes a blog every day. I don't know. Purple cow. <laughs> I'm not a little gal. I don't know. I'm a YouTube. Like, you know yeah, how you right. have a little platform? Whoever yeah. wrote The Purple Cow. Uh, uh, oh, yes. Seth no. Godin. There we go. Seth Godin. Yes. No, I do know him. Yes, Seth Godin. Yes. So Seth says if your first videos or blogs or – your first iteration of the stuff you've put out doesn't embarrass you now, then you waited far too long to release it. And so that's, and that's, true. yeah, absolutely. But, but your reframe around it, that's incredible to be able to look at people. And if they had not put out their first version, then you just think they're always perfect. You think they were born with impact and presence. And that would be very unfair and unkind of them. For them to be able to say, well, this is where I started and if I started there, well, maybe you could start there too and you just use what you've got in your hand and you bring yourself wholeheartedly and you step forward and then you you get better and you get bigger and you Lovely. make more impact. So I love that. Thank you for sharing that. We put them on a pedestal and I think what yeah. this does is it's a human in an instant. You look at the first video of Beyonce on YouTube and you're like, oh, okay, this is someone who literally wanted to have a singing career. Or you look at the first one of... Um, of Steve Jobs and you're like, okay, or the first one of Elon Musk and you're like, who is this guy? Like it's, it's really humanizes them. And once it humanizes them, you're like, okay, these people are no different to me. Why is this not possible for me? Of course it is. That's great. Excellent. Uh, okay. Is there anything else that you have found particularly useful in terms of overcoming insecurity and standing in your power? Um, this idea of empowerment, anything finally that we haven't covered that you think would be important to touch on for those listening? Um, let me think. I think the other thing that I would say is, um, and it's we've kind of touched on it, but it's just, it's more so, and I get that it's hard, right? Like it's not an easy thing. And I think we need to kind of reframe everything with that at the forefront. This is not easy and it's a difficult thing. But the process of making a decision to like 
give yourself grace that it's not going to be this instantaneous thing and you're going to fall down before you get to the place that you want to want to be but just to be really kind to yourself and to be really kind of leaning into backing yourself when it feels uncomfortable and doing it regardless and almost like cutting off negative self-talk before it gets too far and it's I think the more that you do that around your own self-talk the more that it just becomes like a muscle or a new snap a new what do they call it in your brain like a new connection in your brain so I would say and we've touched on it but I would say that is a large part of it is just literally giving yourself grace and really honing in on um that kind of uh having having more control over how you speak to yourself yeah beautiful thank you where can people find you? Where do you hang out online? People want to know more about you and the work you're doing in the world. So me personally on Instagram, I'm Jess May Wilson, M-A-E. And then we're making waves is we're making waves dot NFT. <laughs> and those are probably the main places. We're also on LinkedIn. Our website is www.wimakingwaves.io. Wonderful. I'll make sure those links are included. Uh, Jess, thank you so much for your time and your energy and your wisdom today. It's been very valuable. Thanks for having me. I knew we'd have a great conversation. I was looking forward to this. No, it was, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye.